Okay, good evening, everybody. Let's start to find our seats because we're going to start here with the book of Zephaniah. So I'm excited to be back with you guys again after uh, looking at Habakkuk last week and a blessed time. That was a special announcement real quick. Uh, if you can help us out for narrow way, we have a small special request. Uh, we need two liter empty bottles and we need cardboard. So if you have some empty two liters or you've got one that you're about to finish up, Think about it. I don't know. I wasn't in charge. So you could see Morgan or Kai if you have one of those two items, because we need that apparently. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to get into the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is toward the end of the Old Testament. It's a pretty small book. If you need to use your table of contents, there's no shame in that. Please do so uh, to, to help you find your way there, because it's so small, and it's at the end. So as you guys are turning there, I wanted to pray real quick before we get into our time. So uh, would you pray with me? Lord, um, we thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for God being here, being involved, being present in our lives. Uh, God, I pray tonight as we open up your word that it would do its perfect work in our hearts. Lord, that it would come to challenge, convict, encourage. Uh, Lord, cut us down, fill us uh, up where, wherever we need, Lord. And so uh, we're all in different places tonight. Um, so Lord, I pray, Lord, as your Holy Spirit speaking to us, as your word is speaking Lord, that we'd be attentive to that still, small voice. We'd be listening uh, to what you have to say to us. And as we're going to learn tonight, more than just hearing, but then obeying this week. Um, and so uh, we pray that for just a blessed time, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would teach us this text. We pray it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Zephaniah, I'm going to go into a little bit um, of the background information. Something I wanted to say last week, but I didn't, but I want to say this week. Uh... So we're going to go a little, like, the, the minor prophets, the, bo the books of the Bible, are not written chronologically. But they do do something really cool. Publishers make a chronological Bible. So if that's something that might help you, maybe you get confused about where things are in the story, I would recommend going out and finding a chronological Bible. That's very helpful, I think. I don't know. Maybe because I can't keep everything straight. But that's a very helpful study tool. Uh, so here, let's read a little bit um, of this first verse here in a second. It gives us, unlike Habakkuk last week, it gives us exactly where, where we're at in the, in the uh, timeline of history and who we're dealing with. And so this is the last of what's called the pre-exilic uh, minor prophets, prophets here. Uh, pre-exilic means before the exile, then post-exilic means after exile. And so this is the last of the pre-exilic uh, prophets. And he, Zephaniah, a lot of uh, commentators, a lot of people who look at the Bible say that it's kind of unoriginal because he's going to repeat a lot of the messages from the minor prophets before him. Does that kind of make sense? So he kind of retools the same messages, maybe quotes from them. Uh, so it's very similar uh, to the other prophets. Uh, like things like this, right? He's going to pronounce judgment on Nineveh. We've heard that before. Uh, he's going to talk about the day of the Lord. That's been repeated. He actually, Zephaniah is going to quote the day of the Lord uh, a ton of times. We're going to see that. He talks about coming judgment, future hope, and restoration. And so a lot of these themes that have already been said, he's using them again in these, this little three-chapter book. But what I think is interesting about this is I think that God knows that we need reminders, right? Israel needed reminders, God was sending prophet after prophet after prophet to remind them. Um, and they were continuously not listening um, to every prophet, even before Zephaniah. Um, but I think we need this as well, right? How many times have we heard, I learned in preschool to love our neighbor as ourself. In a public preschool, right? So, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself. I've heard it a million times. How well do I actually do it, right? I need reminded of it. Because sometimes I don't follow through on that, right? Or love the Lord your God with all your strength. Who's loved the Lord their God with all their strength today? With everything that they have today, right? We need these reminders. And so I don't, even though it's a little bit repetitive, maybe you're thinking, I think it's needed and it's helpful, right? Because we're so quick to forget. So let's read uh, verse 1 here in the book of Zephaniah. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, I don't know, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, Ammon uh, king of Judah. So here we see, this is kind of interesting, Zephaniah, he was special. He was a special prophet because he was of royal descent. A lot of these other prophets weren't. And Hezekiah uh, was his, I, I, always, I couldn't count it, 
I was screwing up. It's either his great-great-grandfather or his great-great-great-grandfather. One of the two. You count it. It confuses me because it's like not your dad. You, gotta, you know what I mean? So it's one of those two, right? Either great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-grandfather. In Hezekiah, if you remember, there's only a handful of kings that were good, and Hezekiah was one of them. And so he's the descendant of Hezekiah. And Zephaniah here, he was probably born during Manasseh's reign. So remember, he's a really, really wicked king who reigned for 55 years. I'm going to read you a passage real quick if you want to turn there. Uh, It's in 2 Kings 21. You don't have to, but leave your finger there in Zephaniah. Just detailing a few of the things that Manasseh uh, had done. So this is 2 Kings 21, verses 1 through 5, and I'm also at the end going to read 16 here, verse 16. So it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, I don't know, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast uh, out before the children of Israel. Listen to this, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem uh, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts in the house of the Lord. Let's keep going. Sorry, a little bit more. Six. Also, he made his son pass through the fire, practice soothsaying, use witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So look at this. Manasseh, I'm going to give you a quick summary, just a few bullet points. He rebuilt the high places to pagan gods that his dad had torn down because he didn't want idol worship in the nation. Then he erected a statue to Baal. He built altars to other false gods in the temple and its courtyard, so the surrounding area. And then listen to this. It says that he, he, caused, he had his son pass through the fire. He performed child sacrifice. The king of Judah performed child sacrifice and witchcraft is what it's saying. So this is the condition that we see it. It's really far gone. Right? And that's what we're t- talking about with Habakkuk. Remember, he was wanting uh, punishment for Judah, right? Because look at how evil, how far away it's gotten, right? Child sacrifice by the king. Pretty awful stuff, right? Look at uh, verse 16. Uh, it says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. And so we know Manasseh was just innocent, like killing innocent people as well. And so it's a wicked guy, a wicked king, right? And so Zephaniah, I think it's kind of interesting. So he was born uh, probably during Manasseh's reign. Zephaniah's name means hidden by God. I think that's really cool. Hidden by God. So during all of this evil and all of this backsliding and sin, God hid Zephaniah. I think that's really pretty, isn't it? So Zephaniah here is preaching probably right before Josiah's revival. Remember we talked about that last week. He had the book of the law read and it says uh, he's prophesying here in the days of Josiah, but he's crying out over this wickedness he's still seeing. So it's probably before the revival of Josiah. Okay, so uh, let's see. I'm going to give you a quick rundown, quick bullet point, I don't know, outline, I guess, of what we're going to do with this book. So in chapter one, we're going to read about the pronouncement of judgment. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see this call uh, to repentance. In chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, we see judgment on the surrounding nations around Judah. In chapter 3, the first seven verses, we see the heart of the problem, the condition of the nation. And then in chapter 3, 8 through 20, we see the coming revival that God promises. So that's kind of an outline real quick of where we're going. So let's read here verse 2. It says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, 
says the Lord. And so for Zephaniah, this had a very real and near fulfillment. In about 40 years, Judah's going to be completely decimated. But we know in biblical prophecy, I could give some examples, but I only have like 20 more, 25 more minutes. So I'm not going to go into crazy examples. But a principle of biblical prophecy is typically, uh, like a lot of the times, there's a near fulfillment and then a future fulfillment. So in Zephaniah's day, he's going to see, or right after him, right, he's going to see uh, part of this fulfillment. And then there's still a fulfillment that we're going to talk about here, where there is a coming day of the Lord, where God is going to judge all things, right, and consume everything that's coming up still for us, right? The ones happen with Zephaniah. There's still a coming one. If that kind of confuses you, so this is, this confuses me. Lexi yesterday, my wife, she wanted, I guess, we're, I was supposed to celebrate the anniversary of when we started dating. I didn't know that. I just thought it was when we got married. So I forgot. So I was like, she got me something. I was like, dang. I was like, you want to go get ice cream? <laughs> right? So we got ice cream, and she was happy. She was content. So I messed up on that one. My bad, Lexi. I'll, I'll, I'll learn next year. But if I said for our anniversary or our dating anniversary, whatever, our anniversary, we're going to go get ice cream, right? That could be a near fulfillment and, like, say it was tomorrow, right? We could go tomorrow, but then next year when it happens again, we could go for ice cream again. You guys see how that's kind of like a double thing? And so that's kind of what the Lord does sometimes is he has a, a near fulfillment for that person. And then a far fulfillment as well that's going to that's gonna come to pass. And so verse 2 and 3 here, it's very similar. If you, like we don't have time to read four chapters of the Bible, but it's very similar to how John describes the great tribulation in Revelation 16 through 19. And so you can read that on your own time. It's, it's very similar. Here's some of the languages and some of the ideas. Remember that the day of the Lord is not one specific day, right? Like my dad always says, back in my day when I was in shape right? Not talking about one specific day he was in shape. He was talking about a time period, right? And so this isn't talking about one specific 24-hour day. It's talking about a period of time, right? It's a reference to the time for us for this future fulfillment where Christ is going to come back and rapture his church. That's what we're waiting for, right? Right after that, that's the day of the Lord. Seven years of God's culminating, you know, uh, justice and righteousness is going to be brought about on this earth, culminating at the end with Jesus coming back, right, to reign and to rule for forever, right? So it's pretty interesting here. I, I like the words here, consume, wiped out, right? That's what we read about in, this, in Revelation, the seal judgments and the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments, right, with famine and disease and war and all this different stuff, right? And so you can uh, look at that in your own time. I don't think we have time to go into all those chapters. So let's read uh, verse 4 here. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah, and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests uh, with uh, the pagan priests. And so right here, number, in verse 4, we see Manasseh, again, he built these monuments of Baal in the temple. Think about that, right? Think about if we erected a, a, a statue to another god here in church, right? It's gross. But this was the epicenter of worship in Jerusalem at this beautiful temple, right? Verse 5, those who worship the hosts um, of heaven uh, on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. This is who the Lord's going to stretch his hand against, right? People who are backslidden and people who just didn't care in the first place, were just complacent. Uh, they had no desire to follow God. Did you see that, that name in there, Milcom, in, in verse 5? That's another name for Molech. And Molech, uh, if, you, if you know about the statue erected to him, erected to him uh, it's pretty gruesome. But Molech, he would have hands out, out, outstretched like this, and they would heat it up, probably a bronze statue, to the point where they would eventually put a baby on there and kill the baby on Molech's hands. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem. This isn't Nineveh. This isn't some surrounding nation. This is where God's supposed to have this covenant relationship with his people and reside in the temple, right? That, that's the city that we're talking about. How awful is that, right? Uh, and so God hates this, right? He will destroy, um, you know, his people, his, his people's land over this. And I just think it's interesting. My mind instantly goes there, so I guess I'll say it real quick. But why do we in America offer up millions of babies in the name of freedom, right? God hates it, right? Uh, so just put it in our perspective. It'd be like, right, the people of God going out there and performing child sacrifice. Imagine if we went out and someone performed a child sacrifice after this. That's how awful 
the nation has become. That's how backslidden it, it is. Do you see how God has been trying over and over and over to get the people's attention and to send prophet after prophet after prophet to remind them of the law and of the covenant that he had with them, how he's long-suffering and he's patient with his people, but at some point he's going to pour out his anger on them, right? right? And so he's been trying. It, it was hundreds of years this time period that God was giving him grace and patience, but eventually God's saying, Enough is enough, right? It's getting really bad, guys. Okay, so let's read 7 through 9 here. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. The sacrifice here is talking about Judah. The Lord's prepared them uh, to be a sacrifice. And it shall be, in verse 8, in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And so in 7 through 9 here, we see that God is warning the royal community. You talk, see that with the princes and the kings and the king's children, things like that, in what's going to happen to them if they don't turn uh, to God. Um, let me see. Sorry, I lost my place. Beautiful, got it. Sorry. So God, listen to this. I think this is a, a good uh, example for us. God, so they've gotten to this point. It wasn't at this point. They were at Hezekiah's revival, right? But God was just a part of their life at some point. And then he became not a part of their life at some point. You guys see that? And then he was forgotten, right? It's a slow fade. That's why Hebrew says, don't drift. Don't drift away, right? Because um, Right? We, we, we kind of subconsciously, we don't even understand what we're doing, and then we look back and we're so far away from the Lord, right? And I think that's uh, kind of how the American church, church treats Jesus sometimes, right? Jesus is a part of my life. Jesus is a fun hobby. But that's not what Christianity is in the Bible. In Christianity, right, in the Bible, it says that Jesus is our life. He's not a part of our life. We were just reading in uh, church the other day, in, in John 6, I don't know, maybe a month ago, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. And then there's this great multitude following, following him, excuse me, from John uh, chapter 6 earlier in the passage, where he feeds the 5,000. They see this great miracle, and everyone gets fed, and they follow after Jesus. And then Jesus says, okay, well, if you want to follow me, you have to eat of my flesh, right, and, and drink of my blood. And so what he's saying is you can't pick and choose. You have to take all of me. And guess what happens? The multitude that was following him and experienced the blessing and the miracles, guess what they did? They left. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And what's Peter say? Lord, we're not going to leave. Only you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? That's got to be the cry of our heart, right? Jesus isn't a part of our life. He is our life. He's where we go to for spiritual nourishment in life, in sustenance, in enjoyment, he can't just be a part of it. He has to be the center. Does that make sense? And so I think what happened with the country was probably at some point, right? It didn't just go from zero to 100, right? They were following. They were in revival. And then suddenly he just probably became a part and then not a part. To the point where they lost the scroll. They lost the Torah. They didn't even have the Bible anymore, right? They were performing uh, child sacrifice in Jerusalem. Awful stuff. And so may that not be true of us. May we keep Jesus, may we keep God at the center of life. He is our life. Um, I think it's kind of interesting here, that talking about the foreign apparel, did you see that? The, the royal community. The priests and leaders of Judah, they were ashamed of their identity. They wanted to wear this foreign clothing instead of the apparel that uh, God had told them to wear in Numbers 15, which is kind of cool if you go look at it. It was laced, the, the apparel they were supposed to have was laced with with blue on the outside, out, like blue trim, supposed to be a reminder of heaven. And they were ashamed, embarrassed about this. And so they wore foreign apparel so that they could kind of, I guess, fit in maybe. But I think it's interesting, clothing, especially in New Testament times, it signified maybe what family you were a part of, right? Or what job you performed, what your place in society was. It was kind of your, it was part of your identity, what clothes you wore. And I was just thinking about this last week. I was telling this to the youth kids. As Christians... We're adopted into a new family, and so we're a part of a new culture, right? We have a new standard of dress. But the same thing, our marriages should look different. Our friendships should look different. The way we spend our money or our time or our energy should look different because we're a part of a different people. 
We're now God's people. We're now God's sons and daughters. You guys know in, in different families um, how you speak a little differently. Lexi says water, and it takes me back every time, right? There's something weird that my family does, but I'm not going to share it to embarrass us. I'm just going to embarrass Lexi, right? But every family, right, we got a little bit of these different uh, things that we kind of do, right? Mannerisms, sayings, whatever it is. We talk a little bit similar, whatever it is, right? And, but we're a part of the family of God, right? Our culture should look a little different. And so our identity, our clothing, our standard of dress should be different. Let me read you guys um, a passage real quick from Colossians 3, and then I'm going to read something from Ephesians 4. So Colossians 3, 8 through 14, it says, But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, bar uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. I'm not going to read the Ephesians passage for the sake of time, but think about some of the, this list. So listen, we have a new clothing, new clothing that we, we're to be putting on, right? Because our old man is dead, and God's made us new creations in him, and he's saying these old clothes don't fit anymore. And you're going to read about it uh, I guess, I don't know when it's happening. When Mike teaches on Zechariah, when God gives Joshua these new garments, right? That's what happens to us. And so let's think, before we put these new garments on, we have to take the old stuff off. So it just said it. Just this one passage. There's more passages. You can read about it in Ephesians 4. And then Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. But look, we've got to put off anger and malice said bitterness at the beginning, kind of what starts those two things, right? Bitterness, we hold a grudge in our hearts, kind of festers, grows into anger. We're angry at that person, then malice is being violent toward that person, right? And so we're to, we're to put those things off. We're to put off wrath. We're to put off blasphemy. How about this one? Foul language. Then it says to put on these new clothes. These are clothes that now fit us. They fit the new man. They're made for us. Kindness. Think about, are we kind? Humility, are we humble? Meekness, is power under control. Long-suffering, do you bear long with people in an age of cutting people off quickly? Forgiveness, do we forgive others because Christ forgave us? And do we love? That's, that's how Jesus said his disciples will be known by, uh, by our love, right? And so think about uh, tonight, what clothes do we have on? What spiritual clothing do we have on? What do we need to change what do we need to take off? But it's not enough to just take off. We need to put something on, right? That shows our identity, our newfound identity in Christ, that we're new creations, right? And this is talking about, obviously, our character, our spiritual character, these passages in Colossians and Ephesians, right? I heard this once. I was telling the Narraway staff this the other day. I think I heard this. I can't remember. Maybe a, I, think, I think it was a business class in college. But I heard this one phrase, you rise to the level of your potential, but you fall to the level of your training. But I think for Christians, we rise to the level of our potential, but we fall to the content of our character, right? Because sometimes, right, we, we need to work on our inner man. Sometimes, right, you, know, you guys know when you're having a great day, maybe you've read, uh, you're walking in the Holy Spirit, it's great, you got a raise that day, I don't know, right? It's easy, not easy, I shouldn't say that. It's easier, how about that? Then when everything's, uh, kind of falling out of place. You don't know what's happening. Your head's kind of spinning. Everything's going on. Maybe you're anxious about the future. I don't know what it is. But, you know, a lot of people, we can use our gifts and we can have a great day and we can be up here. But like we've seen in the American church, there's people, right, there's pastors who have great speaking ability, right, and are awesome at preparing a sermon or delivering a message. And then they're in another scandal, right, because their, their character is so low. They fall so low. And so those off days, those days when we're struggling a little bit, Where's our character at, right? Is it at the floor, right? Some days we're great. We can just, you, you, maybe you think you can survive off your giftings, your talents, or your charisma, uh, your personality maybe, but in those days when it's hard and things aren't going your way, I, th I, I think that a lot of times we fall to the content of our character, right? And so what are we like? Do people look at you and say that you're a loving person, right? Do they say that you're kind? I love that 
that word it says in Colossians, to put on tender mercies, is to have a soft heart. We have a soft heart, right? And so thinking about this, right, what do we need to put off and then what do we need to put on, right? I think this has been helpful in my life and not anywhere close, but this is kind of helpful to me, so I thought I'd share it. It's helpful to identify the gaps in your character, right? Where, where are you struggling? You know, it's even tougher, but it's really helpful. Ask someone close to you, hey, where do I lack character? Where do I need to grow, right? And then pray for the Holy Spirit to help you. Guess what? He's going to help you. <laughs> That's awesome. Find verses maybe on that topic. Maybe you struggle with anger. Find a verse um, about that. And then depend on God's grace and his enabling spirit to help you out in it, right? I love that it's not up to us, but it does involve us, right? It's not up to us to become a more loving person. That's only Jesus through us. That's only the Holy Spirit through us. But we do have to make a choice, right? We're not going to stumble into being a super loving, humble, meek, long-suffering, patient person. (laughs) It doesn't happen. Our human nature is working against that. It takes intentionality, right, and writing it down or thinking about it and praying through it and not just kind of drifting like we were talking about um, at the beginning of the passage. I love uh, in John 15, what a, beautiful, what a beautiful chapter that is. Jesus talking about uh, the relationship between us and him, how we're the branches and he's the vine, right? It's not up to us to produce the fruit. What's our responsibility? Just abide. Just live in Jesus. Just rest into Jesus and guess what? He will produce the fruit. Like in John 6, what we were just saying, the disciples, right, could not multiply the loaves and the fish. Guess who did it? Jesus did. But Jesus had them sit down in those rows, and then the disciples took it from Jesus, the miracle they received, and then they went to give. Man, what a picture for us. It's not us. It's not up to us to produce these things. The pressure's off. You're not supposed to be the manufacturer of spiritual fruit. That's only Jesus. That's only the Holy Spirit. That's only the work of God in your life. But you are called to abide. Just live in Jesus, right? Just rest in him. And it says, you, Jesus says, you will bear fruit. Not like a 50-50 chance. He doesn't say, well, I hope you bear fruit. No, you will bear fruit. Just abide with him. And what's that fruit? It's just talking about our character. Uh, so let's work on, I think, working on our character. Let's work on our character together and become a more fruitful people. I heard this real quick. I should go quick. Should I say it? I ho- heard this interesting thing. I, was, I think I was reading an article or listening to a podcast, but this arborist, my dad will like this, was talking about these trees. He was studying these trees in the Pacific Northwest. I think it's interesting. And, okay, so you know a tree canopy, right? So think about a little tree at the bottom. doesn't get much light, right? gets a tiny bit of light that passes through the leaves up top. And then also, it doesn't get much nutrients from the soil because guess what? The bigger roots of the bigger trees are sucking that up, right? And the water, everything like that. And so what he said is, he's observed in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know if it's true anywhere else. I just heard him talk about this. The little trees at the bottom who aren't getting much sunlight, who aren't getting much nutrients, they don't worry about getting taller. They worry about getting wider. I think it's kind of interesting. They widen their base. And here's what happens if a tree beside them falls before they're wide. They shoot up really quick to find that gap in the canopy, right? But then guess what? They're too weak. They're too small. And then they eventually will topple over in a storm because they don't, they're not grounded. They're not wide. They're not, uh, you know, rooted or grounded in Jesus like the language of Ephesians says, right? And it's kind of interesting. So if it becomes wide... And it, and it becomes rooted in the ground. Then when there's a gap, it shoots up and it's strong enough to handle it. Does that make sense? And so I think a lot of us, sometimes, I don't know where you guys are at, but I'm a young guy. Some of my friends are young people who are very ambitious, maybe in ministry or in life, whatever. And maybe you're wanting the next thing. You want to be serving somewhere in ministry or you want to be a husband or wife or a grandparent or whatever. Instead of just focusing so much on that goal, just focus on your character right now. Become wider. <laughs> Become stabler in the base because a lot of people, their opportunity comes, but they didn't take that time to become rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. Does that make sense? So that's kind of my encouragement uh, for us, right? To put on these things, to grow, to work on our inner man by the help of the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's not up to us, but it does involve us. Okay, uh, let's look at chapter, uh, this is going to be weird. Let's skip to chapter three real quick. Okay, because this is going to be the heart 
of the problem. What we just read in chapter 1, they're the symptoms of the problem. This is the heart of the problem. Let's just read 1 and 2. It says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. Well, hopefully you'd think they're talking about Nineveh, somewhere else. No, talking about Jerusalem. Pretty sad stuff. Rebellious, polluted, oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. So look at this. This is a good checklist for us. One, do we obey God? That's the first thing. She has not obeyed his voice. We need to be obeying. It's not enough to be informed. God wants us to be transformed, right? And this happens through obedience. One of the means he does it is through obedience. As we obey, he forms us into the image of God. Look at the second thing. Not receiving correction well. If we're not obeying, what's the next, you know, next natural thing for a, a loving parent to do is to correct. Because you didn't obey. That's what God is saying that he's doing here. But then it gets worse than that because they weren't receiving correction. Then they don't trust in the Lord. Right? This is kind of the root of it all. When or, you know, why we don't believe, why we don't obey or listen to instruction, it's because we don't trust him. Maybe it's in the present moment, or maybe we don't trust God with the future, right? We don't believe, I think a lot of times, that God knows what's best for us, right? We believe that we have a better plan for our lives, right? Or in our heart of hearts, maybe we wouldn't say it with our mouths, we think that God doesn't have our best interest at heart, right? But we do, and so we want it to be this way, and it's hard to trust God when it's a different way. And look, when we don't trust in God, look at the result of this, number, this fourth thing. She has not drawn near to our God. Have you ever noticed that maybe there's a tension in your friendship or maybe there's friction in your marriage or something and it causes you not to come closer and draw near, right? This happens in our relationships and this happens with God as well, right? When we're not trusting, when we're going against what he's saying, when we're not receiving him or his instruction, guess what? There's going to be an aspect where we're not drawing near, right? Because it's awkward sometimes. Right? There's friction. We need to confess our sin, and we don't want to do that. And that's what happens. When we're, when we're in sin, we start to drift. And that's the root here. This is the issue, which is causing all those problems we saw in chapter 1. Okay, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 10. Ready? We'll go quick. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mourn, mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Interesting. Forty years later, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and wipes out Judah, guess what he does? He comes through the fish gate and goes straight to the second quarter. <laughs> that's exactly what happens, right, if you read a history book. So 40 years later, that's uh, what happens. Okay, 11, well, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, and those who handle money are cut off. Number 12, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search uh, Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. So th this is saying here, God, you know, you can't hide from God, <laughs> right? He, he'll search for you. He will find these people, right? They can't hide away, right? And then it says here, uh, these people who are settled in complacency, complacency, excuse me, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. This is the mentality of maybe deism or thinking that God is like a clockmaker or watchmaker, right? That God is indifferent, but God is anything but indifferent, right? He's involved presently. He's currently, I love this in Hebrews 1, Jesus is holding all things together right now. He's not just the creator of the universe, he's the sustainer of the universe. Right now he's doing that. He's concerned about the details. And listen to this. this is the, if you want to, if you, if you have any questions about it, he himself entered creation. <laughs> he's not a far off. Yes, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's here. He's with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us, right? And I wanted to encourage you guys, maybe, um, I don't know, maybe God's been kind of quiet. I know we read through his word, but you guys know uh, sometimes when you're in that season, maybe you're not discerning the, the, the Lord's voice very well, excuse me. Right? I want you guys uh, to be encouraged. Don't confuse God's quietness for his lack of caring. Right? Don't confuse God's quietness for his lack of caring. Maybe he's asking you to draw closer and to press in harder. I think about the intertestimonial period for 400 years when uh, the people were wondering you know, if God's speaking for 400 years. He, he hasn't revealed anything else to us in his word, spoken through a prophet, whatever. But guess what he was doing? 
He was setting up the world for the gospel to be spread like wildfire because everyone started speaking the same language and the road system was being built, right, that connected the whole world. And so even when God's being kind of quiet, maybe you think, it's not that he stopped caring. He's still working, right? So just keep trust, keep trusting him, keep pressing into him. Okay, 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near. Uh, it is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Uh, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. So again, if you actually go look at Revelation 6, this is really what's similar uh, to, you know, Zephaniah saying to what John is saying. So if you go read uh, Revelation 6, it's already 803, so I cannot read it. <laughs> uh, it. There's definitely some similarities there. But I want to point out something from the New Testament. Thessalonians, thank the Lord that we are not appointed for wrath. Aren't you guys grateful for that? We're not going to be a part of that wrath, right? God, why? Why, why is that true? Because God took that wrath out on Jesus. It was fulfilled. He took it for us. That's the gospel. And so there's no more wrath for us because God looks at us like he sees his son. That's the gospel. He gives us those robes that we're talking about of righteousness and holiness. Praise the Lord for that. Okay, let's go to chapter 2. Um, here, I didn't read the whole verse 18. I'm sorry. It was at the top of my Bible. Anyways, okay, chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's anger, fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may, may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. I think it's interesting here. He says the day passes like chaff. I think the day's go by so fast, right? Doesn't it seem like yesterday was Christmas? That's how I feel. I was like, just last month, right? And I think this is one of the devil's great lies. Yes, there's a great lie. God doesn't exist. Or yes, there's a great lie that Satan doesn't exist, right? He tries to stay hidden, act like uh, he's not real so he can keep playing behind the scenes without you ever knowing. But I think one of his great lies is that it's, you know, there's no need to be in a hurry, Right? It's fine. It will get taken care of. You're okay. But the days, they pass. The psalmist says it over and over again, right? That our life is like a vapor, right? Uh, and so the days go fast. How many times have you heard from the Lord? And you're like, oh, I'll get to it tomorrow. And that turns into a week. And you know, it turns into a year. And then we never get to it, right? The only time we can obey God is today, right? How can I obey God tomorrow right now? I can't. <laughs> but I can't obey him right now. So don't put it off, right? The days pass like chaff. Don't, don't put it off. We'll regret it. Okay, uh, in verse 3, I think it's kind of interesting. God's giving encouragement to anyone in the land who is submitting to God, uh, to God's commands, right? He says, stay humble, basically. Keep doing righteousness. Keep obeying. And I, I think this is a message to the humble, like, good job, keep going. But also a message to the prideful, right? Hey, guys, repent of your pride. Submit to the Lord, right? You guys need to repent. And we know this great, um, we know this great message littered throughout the Bible, right? That God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? And we see it even here. Okay, I'm not going to read 4 through 15 for the sake of time, but I'm going to give you a quick outline. Ready? Number one, you can't flee from God's judgment. That's what it talks about. It talks about to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west, whatever. Uh, you can't flee God's judgment. Second one, God resists the proud, like what we just said. The surrounding nations were judged because of their pride. Can I read you one verse? This kind of cracks me up. Verse 15. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in their heart, I am it. They just said that they are it. They're the culmination of what a city should be. That's pretty prideful, right? So this is the condition, basically, of these nations. They're prideful. Uh, the third message here, God takes offense to those who oppose God's people. Right, verse 10, let me read it. This they shall have for their pride because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people 
of the Lord of hosts. God knows how to protect and to defend the honor of his children. Right? And I think it's kind of interesting, maybe in the context of today, I know that there's problems with the church. I think that we should call them out. We should seek to address it. But we shouldn't be people who 24-7, 365, just bash the church. Why? Because Jesus loves the church. And let's be people who love what Jesus loves. Right? And so instead of spending all of our time, I'm saying there is a place to call out when there's sin or something's backwards. Let's call it out, right? Let's seek to address it. But let's spend more time encouraging and less time criticizing, right? Okay, last section. We're going to skip 3, 1 through 2, because that was kind of like a, a portion there. We're going to skip 3, 1 through 7. Let's go to, to 8 here, 8 through 20. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they uh, all may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him with one accord. From uh, beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, for sh nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jer Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you, I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint for them. Uh, I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Okay, verse eight there. It's talking about. This is looking to the future, talking about when the Antichrist does war with Jesus in the valley of Megiddo, right? Armageddon. You guys have heard about that before, right? There's like movies about it and stuff, right? Armageddon, right? So Jesus, it says, is going to wipe out the Antichrist. Doesn't stand a chance, right? Um, and then Zephaniah here, he's moving to the aftermath from 9 to 20. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting here. Most of the minor prophets, they start with judgment and they end with hope. Isn't that so beautiful? They start with judgment, pronouncing judgment, but they end in hope. I think there's a couple reasons. I think one, when we're in sin, we need hope. Have you ever met with a friend who's broken over their sin, or maybe you're broken over your sin, right? You don't need to call them out on all their wrongs. <laughs> They're already broken over it. They need some hope in that situation, right? And I think another one, we see the faithfulness and the goodness of God, right? Because we might experience hurt or pain, but guess what? We know this, there will be restoration. We don't hope that there will be restoration. There will be restoration because God is going to bring his people through. Right? So even when we have hurts or sorrows or pains, right, God is going to restore us. And then I think a last point maybe is to encourage the remnant that's in the land. Right? Those who have been holding on, the people who have been faithful, the small minority, the remnant. Right? God's saying your labor is not in vain. It's coming. Be patient. Right? Trust me for that. And so in eight through, or 9 through 20 there, God regathers all the saints, Old Testament saints, New Testament Christians, who die, you know, Christians who die in the tribulation, Christians who don't die in the tribulation and make it through. God's going to gather them together. I think this is awesome. In verse 11, it says that there's no more shame. In 15, there's no more fear. If you go to Israel, right, they're always, they've always been in fear, right, of an opposing, you know, attack, Right? Is someone going to blow, you know, 
you know, blow themselves up and a bunch of people in Israel, there's, there's a bunch of terrorism and attacks and they always have to live with this fear and they don't have to live with this fear anymore. We don't have to live with this fear. We can rest. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne in the millennial kingdom, right? Jesus is going to be reigning and he's in our midst, right? And I think this is cool because we get to enjoy this now, a lot of this now. God is with us. God lives in us. Think about that for a second. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. There's no more condemnation in Christ. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We're more than conquerors in Christ. That's our reality now. Now. And it's going to be even more of a reality here in the coming future when Jesus is reigning on the throne. Praise the Lord for that. And then down in, uh, you know, 1617, it says that God's going to sing over us. That's, I can't wait to hear that, right? What's that going to sound like, right? Uh, how God's singing over us. I think it's kind of interesting. In Nehemiah 8, you guys know, we sang about it. You guys know the verse, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It can be translated, uh, God's rejoicing over us is the strength of his people. And so this is a theme repeated, not just here, but that God sings over his people. I think it's kind of interesting. We see there that God rejoices over us, it says in 17. Right? Think about that. Uh, a lot of times I think maybe some of us in the church, we think God always angry, trying to get at us, displeased with us. Think about this. God rejoices over us, right? Like a, a parent would rejoice over their kids. God takes delight in us. C.H. Spurgeon says a uh, pretty interesting quote here. He says, faulty as the church is, the Lloyd, the, uh, the Lloyd, the Lord rejoices in her. While we mourn as well we may, yet we do not sorrow as those who are without hope. For God does not sorrow, his heart is glad, and he is said to rejoice with joy. A highly emphatic expression. Right? So sometimes we think God, you know, being angry at us, man, he's rejoicing over us. He loves us so much. Right? He sees us, it says in Ephesians 4, as his masterpiece. He delights in us. He loves you, and he also likes you, right? Have you ever uh, had that relationship maybe with a sibling? Like, you know you love them, but you don't really like them, <laughs> right? But God loves us. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. He doesn't just love us. He likes us, too. He loves being with us. He rejoices. He's proud of us, right? And so I just wanted to close with this thought, because 8.15. should probably get going. Sorry. It's hard to do three chapters in, in one setting. But let's close with this thought, Right? A problem I see in the passage is that the people know what to do, but they don't obey. Right? And there's a gap there between knowing what to do and actually doing it. And Jesus speaks a lot to this. And you guys know uh, in, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says those who um, hear God's voice and don't obey, it's like the person who builds their house in the shifting sands. And the person who hears the word of God and obeys is like the person who builds their, their house their house on the rock, right? And so we know there's benefit to obeying God. Why? He's, he's for us. He's good. He wouldn't ask us to do something that would, you know, really harm us or go against us. It's for our best interest. But why is there this gap, right, between knowing and doing? How can we bridge that gap, you know, from what we know to doing what we know we need to do? And I don't have time to get into all of that, but I think just one way uh, might be helpful, right? So if I'm on a diet, and I know I need to eat broccoli, but I really love ice cream, right? I'm probably going to eat the ice cream because I love it so much, right? I've already referenced it two times tonight, right? I love ice cream, right? So it's kind of interesting. I know I should eat the broccoli, but my I really want to, right, eat the ice cream. <laughs> I do, right? And I think it's kind of interesting for us. I think what would be helpful is to look at what do we love, right? Do we... Do we love God? Because if we love God, we're going to want to obey him. That's a natural response, right? And how do we love God then? How do we love God? It says in 1 John, because he first loved us. And so we need to receive God's love. We need to understand how much he's forgiven us. If we took a moment to reflect on, you know, how much God's forgiven us, I don't think we'd have any trouble <laughs> responding to God with obedience, Right? Just taking that time in that reflection, Jesus talks about it. The person who's forgiven much or the person who's forgiven little, who's going to love more? The person who is forgiven much, right? 
And so as we reflect on how sinful we were without hope that we were, that we were lost and in darkness, and how God not only made us even, but then adopted us into his family and gave us all the privileges of being a son or a daughter, I think our hearts would respond with obedience, our hearts would respond with love, right? I think maybe if you haven't tried this before, abiding with God, living in him, just spending your day with him, I think you'll find that God is lovely, (laughs) and he's beautiful, and he's worth getting to know. And sometimes it's hard, but like with any relationship, it's hard. And you work through it, and you're consistent, and you're there, and you learn to discern his voice, and you'll find that he's beautiful. And you'll love doing it. You'll love obeying him, because you know what he's done for you. You know how much he loves you, and so that's just a natural response of our heart. So uh, that's what I want to encourage you guys with tonight. So uh, I would just think tonight, right, talking about character earlier, I would encourage you guys before you go to bed, maybe text someone, think about it, journal, hey, where where do I have maybe a gap in my character, right? What do I need to work on? What's a verse maybe that I can write on an index card and slip in my pocket so that, right, I'm thinking about it, I'm reminded of it, so that we can work on our character together, right? And then here, right, this gap between you guys struggle with knowing but not always obeying. I think maybe one of the reasons is because we need to fall more in love with the Lord, right? And as we do that, uh, we're encouraged to obey. Right, so uh, let's, let's pray, and then that'll be it. Sorry for going long. I tried my best. <laughs> All right. Lord, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you for the lessons from your word. God, I thank you, Lord, that you're still speaking to us. Lord, you're, you're living. Your word's living and active. We don't have to ask for it to come alive. It's already, it's already alive, Lord. It needs to fall on our dead hearts, and so we pray that tonight we would just take some time to reflect on this. Lord, we wouldn't be... Um, Lord, like these people that made you a part of their life and then eventually you weren't, but you'd be the very center. Lord, you would be our life. Lord, we would put on clothing that, that's fitting for new creations in Christ. Lord, that you would help us to put off the old things, not to look like the world. The world doesn't need more of the world. It needs more of you. And so help us uh, to, to every morning, Lord, to take those things off, to, to humbly, Lord, ask you to help us put Um, those other garments on of tender mercies, kindness, love, forgiveness, bearing long with uh, other people. Lord, I pray that um, we would just continue every day to work on this by the enabling help of your Holy Spirit. uh, God, uh, we just thank you for the promises of your word. Lord, sometimes when we're frustrated with how the world is operating or the injustices that we're seeing, Lord, reminded that you're going to make all things right one day. Lord, uh, we thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. Lord, that you're going to come back for us. Lord, you've already saved us and purchased us. You're coming back for your church. Lord, we're going to be with you for all of eternity. Lord, in in perfect health. Uh, Lord, we never get tired, never get sick, we never get uh, sad anymore. Lord, you're there to comfort our hearts. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that we would press into this hope. It would become a reality in our hearts. Lord, like the people that... uh, the opposite of the people of Judah, Lord, that we would obey your voice. We would listen to correction. Lord, we would, um, Lord, listen to when you're trying to get a hold of our hearts. We would trust in you. And Lord, that we would draw near to you. And so I pray tonight, Lord, as we leave this place, uh, Lord, that we wouldn't just be um, uh, just going about what we're uh, going to do this week, but Lord, we'd really be intentional thinking about, Lord, what do we need to do? Lord, to work on our character, to allow you to shape us and to mold us, to be malleable, uh, Lord, so that you can shape us into the image of Christ and not fight against that and be prideful, but really just be humble and submit to that. So thank you for being here. Lord, thank you for speaking to us. Lord, for being so close to us. Uh, Lord, we love just getting together and opening up your word together. I pray that you'd grow us as a community of believers. We press into one another. We pray for one another and encourage one another, and we become more fruitful together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.